Hello, and welcome to Podularity, the online books programme that brings you authors and books in a pod. My name is George Miller, and my guest on this week's programme is Andrew Kahn. I met Andrew in Oxford last autumn to talk about Russia's national poet, Alexander Pushkin. Many people are aware that Pushkin occupies a place in Russian culture akin to that of Shakespeare in Britain, and you may have come across Eugene Onegin, his best-known work, perhaps through Tchaikovsky's opera, or the 1990 film on Yegan, starring Rafe Fiennes and Liv Tyler. But to start at the beginning, I asked Andrew to tell me more about Pushkin the man. Alexander Pushkin was born in 1799. He died uh, romantically, famously, in a duel in 1837. He's often thought of as the founding father of modern Russian literature, which makes him sound rather dusty and old-fashioned. But in fact, he's a great innovator and experimenter in many genres. So he's, I think, reasonably viewed as the greatest lyric poet in Russian. And he's the author of about 600 short poems, which are marvellous and address all sorts of topics that we expect the lyric to address. There are wonderful poems in the manner of Keats, about autumn and the seasons. There are fantastic poems about love, lyrics in in the manner of Byron, 20, 30 lines that are elegant and memorable, often quite dramatic and very personal. He's the author of a considerable body of narrative poems, which are swashbuckling and dramatic. Well, he's probably best known to the general public as the author of Eugene Onegin, or Yevgeny Onegin, as we say in Russian, which is a novel in verse, not unlike Byron's Don Juan, which tells the famous tale of uh, Tatiana, the young country lass Tatiana, who falls in love with the rake and bored Anyegin, who's a bit of a superfluous man, a man about town. And there's a duel in the best European tradition. Uh, so, But Eugene Anyegin is perhaps his greatest achievement. On, on the prose side, he's also a prolific author and uh, is a novelist. The Captain's Daughter, which is set in the time of a peasant rebellion in the Russia of Catherine the Great in the 1770s, is an absolutely wonderful read, as are the Tales of Belkin, which are written in the manner of Sir Walter Scott. So Pushkin is an aristocrat by by birth, but in fact Russian aristocrats of the period are more often than not poor, indigent. His career is very important in the history of Russian letters because he is perhaps the first writer who tries to make his career as a professional man of letters and to earn his keep. Unfortunately for him, the size of the reading public at the time made it difficult to sustain a commercial career. And unfortunately for him, he was an inveterate gambler and got himself, dug himself into a financial hole. It's hard to find an analogy for Pushkin in Western Europe, partly because Russia is an autocratic society in the 19th century, and Pushkin is an independent writer, but at the same time he's a figure at court, and he is a political figure as well. He's subjected, he's scrutinised by the regime, and is actually under the surveillance of the gendarmerie or the secret police and Nicholas I, the Tsar of Russia, keeps a close eye on Pushkin, keeps tabs on him, knows him quite well and they have a very difficult relationship which has a great impact on Pushkin's writing and career. So he's a, you know, insofar as he's a creative genius, he has this wonderful talent which issues in these these poems, these novels, uh, a novel, these these works of fiction, uh, some of which are published, 
and captivate his readership, but some of which can't be published because they seem to be subversive. At the same time, he's a public figure who, as a man of letters, is championing the writer as an independent genius who can make his way in the marketplace. But, and this is particularly Russian, is subject to a very strict censorship regime. Now, the, the title of your book is Pushkin's Lyric Intelligence, and it seemed to me that the title was very carefully chosen because the book is not simply about lyric poetry in terms of meter and rhyme and choice of words. Mm. It's about the ideas which Pushkin was imbibing and which were mm. finding expression in the poetry. Mm. One of the things which seemed to me to be very distinctive about the book was the degree to which you had investigated the intellectual background of Pushkin and indeed his own reading. And I wondered if you could say a little bit about that, that line of inquiry that you pursued yeah. in the book. There's a tendency in literary criticism, Russian literary criticism, to treat Pushkin as a god, as an icon. And his Lyric poetry has such formal perfection, such clarity, such ease, that unquestionably it lends itself to, to being read for its own sake, for its pleasure, the pleasure of experience of reading the text, for listening to the voice, for admiring the skill of his diction. His poems are not written in complicated metres, uh, although he's got a perfect command of the Russian verse system. But I thought that it was time, actually, to see them... Uh, in a slightly different light, and to take Pushkin a bit more seriously as a thinker, and to s ask questions about the way in which his lyric poems reflect his thoughts. I mean, no one has a problem writing about and talking about Pushkin as a thinker when we read and look at his writings on history. When we talk about him as a historian, scholars are always sort of investigating his sources and looking at the ways in which, because he wrote as a professional historian, as well as writing historical fiction, scholars are always engaged in thinking about his philosophy of history, for instance, or when we look at his ideas about politics or uh, the structure of the Russian state, there again, it's perfectly ordinary and customary to investigate his readings in Western political theory. But when it comes to the lyric, there's a tendency to segregate these perfect poems out and simply admire them as perfect f objects from a formal point of view and not ask questions. And I think the starting point for me was to read the poem, look at the poems and say, well, actually, a lot of Pushkin's poems are asking questions about the, the nature of creativity. Where does poetic talent come from? What is the imagination? What is poetic subjectivity? What does it mean to say, I feel, I think? You need to read between the lines a bit, although some of the poems ask these questions openly. There's a wonderful early poem called To an Inkwell, in which the, the poet begins by saying, I'm terribly bored today, I have a hangover. Churning out couplets is absolutely, um, it's a mechanical facility I have. It comes very easily. Is that poetry? What is poetry? Is poetry simply the formal production of seamless verse, or is poetry something more special? And I noticed that he was asking these questions, and he's also asking questions in, in the lyric poems that he doesn't ask elsewhere about the nature of authorship and the status of the writer. In particular, I think he's asks about genius. What is genius? Is genius simply the impression you make? 
on the reader or is genius a commodity that can be marketed? Should, should we have copyright in which we say, you know, this poem is written by Pushkin, it is a statement of his genius and it shouldn't be imitated, shouldn't be copied, in fact it should be paid for. And he writes poems, uh, in particular there's one famous poem called A Conversation Between the Bookseller and the Poet, uh, written as a dialogue in which both sides raise the issue of the commercial value of genius, whether genius should be independent, whether the poet should actually risk alienating a readership and audience by seeming hostile to, by in fact repudiating the reader's demands and saying, I write for myself, I write to satisfy myself. Or as the bookseller says, no, no, the function, the, the purpose of the poet is to make money for the publisher and therefore the writer must cater to the tastes of the readership. And so these were the, the questions I asked myself at the beginning of the project. And we're fortunate in having as a research tool a catalogue of Pushkin's library. His library was extensive, contained about 4,000 volumes or titles. So I made it my business to go about trying to see sort of patterns of acquisition, to see what the, the strongest areas in the library were, and then to systematic to read systematically through everything that he wrote, trying to read all the pages that were cut in those volumes and to ask questions about why he read these things and to build up an intellectual profile that gives us, I think, keys to his conceptual vocabulary. Pushkin is not a great annotator. He rarely, there are very few marginalia, he rarely does more than underscore a word. But there are other ways in which we can gain access. He wrote lots of essays, and I think by trying to correlate his use of a certain abstract vocabulary, words like dream, fancy, imagination, with what we know about his education, what we know about his reading, it's possible to go back to the texts and to discover all sorts of interesting things. And when you put together this more comprehensive intellectual picture, it sheds light on what on unexpected features of the poems. And it, it's worth mentioning that a great deal of his writing was, sorry, a great deal of his reading was in Western European languages, in English and French, and a great deal of those intellectual currents were coming from the West. Yes. Can you say a little about that? Yes. P Pushkin has often been, in fact, Pushkin's contemporaries spoke of him as an 18th century um, author. His first language was French. He was educated at a very privileged boarding school that was for the elite. In fact, he was a member of the very first class to go through the school, which was situated in Sarsky Silo, outside St. Petersburg, right next to the Summer Palace under the eye of the Tsar. The aim in founding the school, the aim of the, the authorities was to produce an enlightened, educated elite who were well-versed in Western literature, Western trends, thinking, and so on. And so from the very start, Pushkin is immersed in 18th century French literature and French thought above all. He has a good basic Latin education, but his library is full of English literature. He's obviously interested in the critical writings of Coleridge and Hazlitt. He reads English poets. There are a lot of questions about the, his competence in English, but I think it's now been conclusively demonstrated that uh, he did read English uh, with some fluency. He's absolutely fluent in French. He, only, he has only a smattering of German, but he reads about German philosophy through textbooks and 
journal articles. And so what we see, if we, if you were to use the library as a portrait, an intellectual portrait of Pushkin, you see someone who is absolutely up to the minute with contemporary trends, who is subscribing, sometimes buying very expensive European books or very rare European books. For instance, we think of the writings of Diderot as great classics, in particularly the fiction of Diderot as part of the canon now, and there are world's classic translations, Penguin classics, Diderot is you know, a very famous figure. But in fact, Diderot's fiction was not published in his lifetime, it was published posthumously in the 1820s. And lo and behold, you, know, you find that Pushkin acquired, uh, as soon as he could, the complete works of Diderot in the very expensive edition, and lots of other minor writings by Diderot. So he really is very well informed. And one of the currents whose arrival in, in Russia and in Pushkin's work, which you trace, is Romanticism. There are clear imprints of Wordsworth, or uh, influence of Wordsworth on, on Pushkin's writing. Yeah. One of the odd things about Pushkin's lyric poetry is that he doesn't write about nature as often as we might expect him. I was puzzled by this. In fact, he produces a handful of lyrics about nature uh, as a young man that are written as pastiche of 18th century French pastoral, and they could easily be anthologized in editions of the 18th century idyll, where shepherds and shepherdesses, cavort and frolic, that sort of thing. It's not until the 1830s that he produces masterpieces of romantic lyric in, in which we see the subjectivity of the speaker engaging with nature, in which we see nature play the role of a, of a mirror or a voice. There are two poems in particular. One is Autumn, written in 1833, and perhaps his greatest um, nature poem is called um, I Visit Once Again, written in 1835, which is a rewriting of Tintern Abbey. There are hints in the 1830s that, of Pushkin's reading of Wordsworth. In fact, he, he's a very skillful draftsman, and his manuscripts are teeming in images, and there's a beautiful little portrait he pens of Wordsworth in one of his notebooks that gives us a sense that he is thinking about Wordsworth, but it's not until Tintern Abbey, his rewriting of Tintern Abbey. But his version of Tintern Abbey, in a way, is an unwriting of Tintern Abbey. And I think Pushkin's romanticism is always qualified by his very strong classicism, which is that there's a reticence about speaking in the first person and about indulging in subjectivity. There's a reticence about engaging in a poetry where the self of the subjective speaker merges with the natural world. I think ultimately Pushkin is interested in Wordsworth because he thinks he can't go as far as Wordsworth in achieving a philosophical synthesis. Wordsworth is inspired by thinkers like Schelling and Schlegel, and Pushkin is interested in all of this, but ultimately he thinks of nature as a system of physical laws that exists outside consciousness, the outside the existence of the lyrical subject. And so in a way, his rewriting of Tintern Abbey is an unwriting of Tintern Abbey, because he can't follow Wordsworth that far. And I think the poem should be seen in the nature of an experiment. At many levels, his romanticism is obvious. He's an independent genius. He, he, he has a fantastic image among his contemporaries as a rebellion, as a political upstart, which we associate with the genius, with the romantic genius. He dies in a duel. He's exiled. He makes politically subversive remarks, and he's sent to 
the Crimea for six years before he's finally pardoned by the Tsar. And he's a great admirer of Byron, whom he imitates for a certain period, about whom he writes. But actually, the tension, and I think the very creative tension in Pushkin, is between his affiliation to a classical aesthetic, a French classical aesthetic of the 18th century, which is about restraint, decorum. It's almost automatic. It's about universality. The poet mustn't be too individual, otherwise it will be impossible for the reader to empathise with the lyric speaker. Unlike the romantic poet, who puts individuality first and foremost. And so there is this tension, creative tension between the two, and I think it's philosophically motivated. You you mentioned at the beginning he was a gambler and he died in a duel. Mm. The other thing which I suppose people who don't know much about Pushkin may know about him is that he had a um, an amatory career which was quite colourful. But you say in the book, you caution against reading back from the poems mm. into the life. Mm. But you also interestingly say that, that Pushkin was consciously self-mythologising in the poetry. He was aware of this, mm. this traffic between the life and the poetry and, and creating an image. I wonder if you could say a little bit about the, the love poetry in, the, in that yes. context. Pushkin's contemporaries note that from a very early age, he, seemed, he seems to have undergone puberty very young, and that from a very early age he had an eye for women. So there's a lot of anecdotal gossip and stuff about his love affairs. Pushkin is aware of that. I have no doubt that, that he had a great appetite, a sexual appetite, and that he was a great lover of women. But his poems to women are uh, often quite anonymous, and they speak of sets of feelings that we can characterise broadly as elegiac. They're not terribly personal. Sometimes he gives just enough contextualization or hint to suggest who the addressee may have been, but he very rarely, if ever, names um, the subjects of his love poems. One can talk about kind of universal feelings that are crystallised in these poems. At the same time, however, he knew that there was in a rumour mill and that a large part of his readership was made up of women who perhaps would have identified with the women who were subjects of his love poems, but who would have been interested in trying to feel close to Pushkin through these love poems. And if one looks at diaries in this period, but also actually much later, as scholars have done, the 1860s, 1870s, you find people, very often women writers, saying, I feel so close to Pushkin, he speaks to me, uh, this is me he's talking about, he loves me, which seems a little absurd, but there's a great identification. And I think, you know, in the 1820s, 1830s, when he is trying to sell his poems and his books, notoriety is valuable and important. And he takes a leaf out of Byron's book, but also he understands that self-mythologizing is a way to captivate the imagination of the public. It's also a way of upsetting the authorities. And Pushkin has to behave, ultimately, if he wants to survive, if he wants to be published, if he doesn't want to end up in Siberia, he has to behave. But erotic subversion is one way, casting himself in the part of the libertine. And uh, one of the texts I don't talk about in the book, but which is notorious, is a poem called The Gabrieliad. I talk about only a little bit. And it's a blasphemous poem that he wrote probably in 1821, in which the Virgin Mary is violated by first by Satan, then by the Archangel Gabriel, and then by God. And it's written as a spoof, but it's deeply, um, it was deeply offensive to the church authorities and to the Tsar. And Pushkin was hauled in seven years later in 1828, when the authorities thought, you know, this is atheistic, it's blasphemous, we can't tolerate this. But it only helped him sell more poems. Let me ask you, Andrew, finally, for an English-speaking reader who hasn't encountered 
Pushkin, hasn't read Pushkin. Mm. Where do you think the best place to start would be? I think the best place to start would be um, the brand new translation of Eugene Onegin, published by Penguin. The translator is Stanley Mitchell, and it's a cracking read. The translation is highly accomplished. Pushkin devised a very elaborate stanza form for the novel in verse, and I think this translation, better, better than any other, really captures the brio and the panache of, of the poem. I think that's a good place to start. I think The Bronze Horseman uh, is Pushkin's greatest narrative poem, and you get a sense of his c- complex attitude to Russian history, uh, in which he pits the small man, the small hero of St. Petersburg, a minor clerk against Peter the Great, this great titan who is seen as both a creative figure but also as a brutal tyrant. I think those would be the two best places. And also Pushkin's prose. There's an excellent World's Classics edition of Pushkin's prose fiction. It contains his most famous story, The Queen of Spades, which was made into an opera by Tchaikovsky. And that's an an excellent, uh, an excellent place to start. It's got pace, as always with Pushkin. He's brief, he's concise, uh, he doesn't waste words, uh, he gets down to business and tells the story extremely well. I was talking to Andrew Kahn about Alexander Pushkin. Andrew's book, Pushkin's Lyric Intelligence, is published by Oxford University Press. You can find more details about it and the other books he recommends on the website at podularity.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe to future programmes free of charge simply by going to iTunes and typing Podularity into the search box. Next week, my guest will be philosopher Julian Bugini, returning to the Podularity studio to tell us why we all ought to complain more. I hope you'll join me then, and until then, goodbye.